0: Welcome to the JCCP Podcast. My name is Jerry Bauman, and I'm the editor of the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Today, we're talking with Dr. Dave Dixon. Dr. Dixon was the chair of the 2022 ACCP Task Force on Clinical Practice Guidelines and led the committee in writing the official ACCP white paper on Clinical Practice Guidelines. Their paper, titled Overview of Clinical Practice Guideline Development, Application to Pharmacy Practice and Roles for the Pharmacist, is published in the January 2023 issue of JACCP. Dr. Dixon is Professor and Chair of the Department of Pharmacotherapy and Outcome Science at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Pharmacy. Dave, thanks for joining us
1: today and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jerry, and looking forward to it.
0: So to begin, Dave, perhaps you could explain the difference between formal guidelines and consensus statements, and then discuss the benefits of clinical practice guidelines.
1: Sure. I think this is an important distinction, and certainly in the article, we wanted to uh, be clear about defining uh, the difference between the clinical practice guideline and consensus statements. Uh, scientific statements and other types of documents. So clinical practice guidelines are developed by a group of ideally multidisciplinary experts within an area, and they follow a rigorous systematic process uh, to create a consensus around the available evidence to provide evidence-based recommendations, primarily for frontline clinicians, although clinical practice guidelines are certainly Utilized by health systems and health policymakers as well. Alternatively, a consensus statement or scientific statement, they do involve experts within a a particular area. And often this is when there's less robust evidence, or maybe there's a, a gap in between updates to clinical practice guidelines. And these documents, while important and can certainly be helpful to frontline clinicians, These usually follow a less rigorous process uh, than clinical practice guidelines and rely more on expert opinion than clinical practice guidelines. And really the big benefit of clinical practice guidelines is they help ensure our patients receive the best care possible uh, and really try to uh, at least help ensure that a consistent approach to clinical care is followed based on the best evidence available. So
0: I think most or many, at least, clinical pharmacists are familiar with the grading systems used to support guideline recommendations, and they usually use two parameters, level of evidence and strength of recommendation. Could you explain the difference and how are they commonly graded? And also, I was wondering, why not just use one parameter?
1: That's a great question, and guideline committee members are expected to review and evaluate All of the available literature following a systematic search process, of course, and it's really a critical step in the guideline development process. Um, As far as the strength of recommendation, this relates to how the recommendation should be implemented in clinical practice based on the benefit to harm ratio. Whereas the level of evidence really is focused on the methodological quality of the available evidence that is behind the recommendation. And both parameters, I think, are important, and it's because while an intervention may provide more benefit than harm, it's also important to understand the level of evidence because there's a big difference between an intervention that is well-studied in multiple randomized controlled trials versus a recommendation that is based maybe uh, mostly on observational data. And I think that's very helpful for the clinician, again, to understand uh What's what's supporting the recommendation? It also helps support uh, areas of future research. You know what what additional evidence do we need? What kind of research agenda should we set? Now, there are definitely various grading systems used in the development of guidelines. Some are very detailed and granular, such as the American College of Cardiology American Heart Association grading system, while others are more broad. So, the U.S. Preventive Services task force simply describes an intervention as either being good, fair, or poor. Uh, And then the strength of recommendation is simple A, B, C, D lettering. Contrast that to ACT and AHA, you have various levels of of evidence as well as strength of recommendation. And there's a lot of nuance there around the different types of uh, study designs, whether a recommendation is strongly recommended Uh, but also identifies areas where a certain intervention may impose harm. So there's a wide range of grading systems out there, and I think that both strength of recommendation and level of evidence uh, is really critical.
0: Summarized in Table 3 of the white paper and then discussed in the text of the manuscript are a listing of the limitations of clinical practice guidelines. Could you review uh, a few of these for the listeners?
1: Absolutely. And I'm sure our listeners are well aware uh, that clinical practice guidelines are far from perfect. And so as a writing group, we wanted to make sure to highlight some of these, but also provide some suggestions for improvement. And I think one of the biggest issues that uh, a lot of our listeners can can identify with uh, is just really the inability of our guidelines to keep up with the rapid pace of scientific research. Uh, Some guidelines, such as the American Diabetes Association, standards of medical care for diabetes have begun updating their guidelines as new evidence emerges. And of course those are updated uh, and published every January, but most guidelines aren't updated, but every three to five years or even longer. Uh, So our committee uh, recommended, you know, greater adoption of of digital guidelines, web-based guidelines uh, that could be more readily available uh, and easy to update in real time as well as the increased use of smartphone applications, which some groups are already doing. So the American College of Cardiology, for example, has a guideline app uh, where clinicians can get access to guidelines and updates at the point of care. And I think we would all agree that guidelines are, are too long for many busy healthcare professionals. So I think the use of executive summaries of guidelines are a must. And then secondly, guidelines should really serve all of our patients, yet we know that women and people of color are often underrepresented in the clinical trials and the evidence that then informs our guidelines. Evidences supporting, you know, that may support a particular intervention may be inappropriately extrapolated to other groups or populations. So I think it's important that we really address this by addressing the diversity crisis we have in our clinical trials. And then on a related note, uh, it's really critical that the guideline writing committee members also be diverse in terms of gender, ethnicity, profession, geography, etc., to ensure that, again, they address uh, all of our patients' needs. And then the last limitation I'll mention is really the importance of ensuring the integrity of our practice guidelines, how author conflict of interests are reported and managed. Uh, that needs to be uh, a clear and transparent process, uh, if clinicians and patients don't trust the individuals developing the the guidelines, then all efforts here are lost. So I think those are three critical aspects, but certainly would encourage uh, our listeners to to review this section in detail because I think there's a lot of good recommendations here to to address some of the limitations uh, that exist with our guidelines.
0: as you note in the white paper. Translating approved guidelines broadly into daily clinical practice is often delayed and often not fully implemented. Why is this so, and is there any way to rectify this?
1: So this is a real issue, and I'm glad that you brought this up. Certainly one major cause is information overload. Uh, There are estimated to be over 3,000 guidelines worldwide. And even within a specialty area uh, such as cardiology, there are dozens and dozens of guidelines to keep track of. And thinking of the busy everyday clinician trying to keep up with this, it's quite a challenge. So I think that goes back to an earlier comment I made in terms of making our guidelines more palatable, utilizing executive summaries, digital applications, really making sure that the organizations that are developing guidelines think strategically about how the guideline is disseminated and it's great to get it published in uh, medical journals, but not everyone is going to, to read a uh, 100, 200, 300 page document. So I think we have to, again, think critically about how we disseminate guidelines. And once a guideline is, has actually begun development, it's important to Think right away, how are we going to disseminate this to frontline clinicians? Who is the audience of the guideline? And thinking again beyond just the the publication in the medical journal. To make matters worse, guidelines frequently can conflict with one another, which can lead to inconsistent practice or just outright clinical inertia, uh, unless a, a health system or a clinic or even a payer has some agreed upon. Protocol that uh, everyone can uh, agree on and follow to try to rectify some of the conflicts that can exist between guidelines. Having more collaboration across organizations that have similar interest within a therapeutic area that can also help to try to reduce some of the inconsistency uh, that we can see in the in some guideline recommendations. And to be fair, I think I would also add that there are some practical barriers as well. Uh, especially around out-of-pocket costs for our patients. So novel therapies might really change the treatment paradigm and become class 1A guideline recommendations. But if our patients can't afford that therapy, then as clinicians, we're often stuck with using options that may be more affordable for the patient, but maybe not preferred and and certainly not a class 1A recommendation. And then we're guilty of not meeting the performance measures. So. Unfortunately, you know, this means too that our disadvantaged patients are often less likely to receive the best available care, which then of course contributes to some of the disparities that we have in in healthcare. So hopefully, you know, some of this will be addressed with some of the ongoing legislative changes around drug pricing. Uh, I think these are three, you know, aspects, certainly there are more, and I think it's important for all of us to be aware of this in our daily practice and, and work to, you know, reduce uh, the clinical inertia and ensure that we work with our colleagues to fully implement guidelines and and best practices.
0: In contrast to when I was uh, practicing, I'm so pleased that more and more clinical pharmacists are being incorporated into national guideline development teams. So do you have any final recommendations for how clinical pharmacists can support the use of clinical practice guidelines and perhaps Participate in some of these groups.
1: Absolutely. And this was one of the things that our group was really happy to report uh, this increase, uh, you know, role of pharmacists uh, as being members of guideline writing committees. I think there are three takeaways that our listeners can use to better support uh, guideline implementation. And first, it starts with setting a good example for others by simply staying up to date. With guidelines most relevant to the patients you serve and certainly that's going to vary based on practice setting and specialty and you know if you are a generalist uh, it can be tough but i think even starting with the uh, you know top 10 disease states that you encounter the most and trying to focus on those can be one way to to do that and then secondly teaching the next generation of pharmacists how to keep up with guidelines how to evaluate how to critique them and to know When to do what's best for the patient. Guidelines are intended to be guidance and not rules. And sometimes what's best for the patient goes against the guideline or at least needs to be considered on another day. And this is something that we all uh, that work with trainees and, and student pharmacists really need to instill in them early on. The third item is helping with disseminating new guidelines to your colleagues and especially healthcare professionals outside of pharmacy. I think as pharmacists, we really look to guidelines uh, especially around medication use and so uh, we are often quite knowledgeable about uh, recent guideline updates and and changes and can be a voice to make sure that our colleagues are aware uh, of aspects particularly related to changes around medication use volunteer to speak at your local institution whether it's grand rounds uh, writing a review article blog post, tweet, whatever platform you want to use, we all need to be a part of the dissemination uh, process. And in terms of getting involved, I think a lot of that starts with getting involved in uh, your organizations, particularly pharmacy organizations that are involved in guidelines, getting involved in the organizations that you know are typically those that lead the development of guidelines, such as the ADA ACC and AHA, critical care societies as well, uh, and getting involved. And it really starts there, being active in your clinical practice, being active on the research front. Uh, it, it's really you know a multifactorial process to at least put yourself in a position to be considered to be a writing committee member one day. And I think it's something that we're going to see more and more of uh, as the years go by.
0: Well, thank you, Dave, for uh, leading this effort on behalf of ACCP and also publishing uh, the paper in in our journal, JACCP. I think it's important reading for our listeners and, uh, frankly, all clinical pharmacists. So thanks again, Dave.
1: Thank you, Jerry.